Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores our human condition through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We talk with researchers and other interesting people to unlock the mysteries of our world in order to help you find your groove. But before we get to our guest, Tim, we wanted to highlight one of our listeners' shout out to us. This is from Uptown Roz on Apple Podcast, and I quote, thoughtful and enlightening, exclamation point. I've now listened to a dozen episodes, and every one of them has been thoughtful and enlightening, also completely relatable to everyday life, like discovering a binge-worthy TV show, only better. Glad to see I have hundreds of episodes left to stream. Look forward to the journey of behavioral science discovery with Kurt and Tim, exclamation point, and signed off by Uptown Roz. That is very, very nice. And I have to say that, you know, anybody who writes a really, really great review can get it read and memorialized for the rest of eternity in the introduction of a podcast, if you just go out and write one. <laughs> <laughs> Are you incentivizing our listeners, it's, Tim? It's a little reward. Okay, oh, but okay, short yeah. story, just thank you to Uptown Roz. That was very nice. Yeah, thank you to Uptown Roz. Very kind review. And now, as they say, on with the show. Okay, P.T. Barnum. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest in this episode is David Cresswell. David is a professor of psychology at Carnegie Mellon University and has published numerous studies on mindfulness-based interventions and their impact on well-being. He is a prominent researcher specializing in health psychology, mindfulness meditation, and stress management. He's also the author of a paper published in January 2023, in Psychological and Cognitive Science edition of PNAS, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, called Nightly Sleep Duration Predicts Grade Point Average in the First Year of College. And sleep is such an important issue, it got our attention. Yeah, absolutely. Th this article is different from others on sleep, uh, and there's a, quite a bit of literature on this. But David tracked both the grades and, and his colleagues tracked both the grades and the amount of sleep for each of the study participants, uh, by the way, who wore Fitbits during the study. Now, the data was very, very rich and provided an insight into the impact sleep can have on our daily lives and most especially on our performance and it was a great conversation and one we think that's important. Not just the idea that college students need to get more sleep. Duh, we all know that. But the implications if we zoom out uh, from this for all of us on the impact that sleep has on our long-term performance. It's, it's pretty cool. It's very cool. And as you might imagine, our conversation really focuses on a pretty detailed view of the study and its implications. Yeah. And the short story is this, getting seven or more hours of sleep can have a very positive benefit to your daily life. And in our grooving session, we'll talk about some tips and tricks to help you find your way to get that great night's sleep. And with that, Groovers, we invite you to sit back or maybe even lie down in a, a comfortable place and close your eyes and maybe even gently fall into slumber. Wait, as what, no, Tim, what? we don't want people to fall into slumber when we're listening to the podcast, we're, we're, I know we're boring, but we're not that boring. <laughs> well, this entire episode's about sleep. But so but why wouldn't we like invite people to sleep? But not sleeping through the episode. They can sleep after the episode <laughs> okay, is done. Right. Right, you need to, you need to start that over. All right. Rewind. And with that, Groovers, we invite you to sit up in a straight and possibly uncomfortable chair 
and pay attention with a highly caffeinated drink of choice. Is this, is this working better for you? Much better. Much okay. better. Um, as we have our conversation with David Cresswell. Welcome, David Cresswell, to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks for having me. It's really great to have you here. We need to know instantly with a quick speed round response, coffee or tea? Tea. Oh, I like it. Love that. Okay. Love that. Barbie or Oppenheimer? <laughs> I have a six and a four-year-old, so it's Barbie all the oh, way. Oh, <laughs> oh. Well, yeah, um, you kind of have okay. to that way. Did you, did you dress up? Did you did you do the whole pink thing when you went? Is it no, uh, no, absolutely okay. not. I, I, I told you I have a six and four year old. There's no time for uh, you know it, we're in survival mode a lot of the time. <laughs> okay, true or false? Freshmen at college shouldn't really worry about how much sleep they get at night because uh, they're young and they can really rebound quickly, right? <laughs> uh, that's a evidence based false. <laughs> I'm sure we will. That'll actually be, uh, we'll, we'll get into that with our first question. Um, uh, and then I think the, the last speed round question that we have is sleep or mindfulness? Uh, the, which is more important to having a, a good life in your mind? <laughs> <laughs> That's an easy one. Sleep. sleep. Oh. oh, sleep. Oh, yeah. well, we're going to have to dig into that as we, as we go. And sorry, that was, that wasn't like a speed round question. That's more of a big philosophical question. But, um, so let's, let's start because we wanted to talk to you about a recent paper that you just published a few months ago. Uh, in PNAS about the relationship between sleep deprivation of new college students and the impact that that has on their cumulative GPA. Uh, so first, tell us a little bit about the study and the hypothesis behind that. Yeah, it was um, a lot of fun. We worked on this across a number of institutions. So this was really a multi-university effort that we led here at Carnegie Mellon University. And we also had, so we also had University of Washington and, and Notre Dame uh, as other participating schools. And in each of the schools, we had put Fitbits on uh, students, undergraduates. Uh, these were primarily first-year students that we reported on in this initial paper. And we tracked their sleep and activity patterns over the course of a, an academic term, a semester, or even several quarters. And we got all sorts of information on these students. Really, our interest was in trying to understand risk and resilience factors for, for undergraduates, particularly as they make this college transition. We know that first year of college is an important time where, for many students, they're, they're sort of on their own for the first time, establishing their own routines, including their sleep routines. Mm -hmm. um, but also, they're getting the first college grades, and we know that those first year grades and GPA are a really important predictor for sort of lifetime, you know, work and, and life success. So it's, you know, it's a really important, I think, transition period in the lives of, of many students, particularly students going on to, you know, residential universities. Yeah. So what was the hypothesis? What did, what did you, what was your expectation going into this? Well, our initial expectation was that the amount of nightly sleep that these students were, were carrying, particularly early in the term, would actually carry some important information for the patterns they were setting up for their academic success. And I think if you asked most students, first-year students, what's the best strategy for their academic success? They would say, sleep less and study more. <laughs> and 
What we actually had was a very different hypothesis, and that's that the more sleep that students are getting, the more opportunity for uh, setting that sleep-induced kind of learning and memory consolidation, that, that sort of offline learning that we know happens during sleep, that if you could give people longer sleep periods, particularly at night, that's going to actually be really important for improving their academic success. And so we measured their their GPAs. We got that from the institutions. Uh, well, we actually got the informed consent of all these participants saying, hey, we're going to track, you know, yeah. your academic <laughs> yes. performance. And, uh, and so for folks who agreed to participate, we were able to get that information. And we could look at whether their, their nightly sleep patterns were important for um, predicting end of semester GPA. So I should say, one of the things we wanted to do is say, could we look early in the academic term? So even that first couple of weeks, that's sort of an important time where people are setting up their sleep patterning that is going to sort of then, you know, ideally drive forward sort of healthy sleep patterns over the course of the semester. But also looking at that, those first couple weeks of the academic term are important because if we can see that there's sort of sleep problems or sleep protection in that period, it gives us an opportunity in future studies to be intervening in this mm. period. Like we want to be able to help students and not wait until it's too late at the end of the academic, academic term. And so we really looked at the first sort of four to six weeks of the, the academic terms in these students. But what we found uh, when we looked at this data, first of all, was that students were sleeping less than we thought they might be. Uh, they were sleeping on average about six and a half hours a night. Oh, And you know, that's probably not surprising to most first-year students. Um, but, um, you know, the kind of standard sleep medicine guidelines usually push up to seven to 10 hours of nightly sleep a night for this particular right. age group. And so they're so they're undershooting. And, you know, even if you say, hey, they're missing by about 30 minutes a night, that adds up over time and you generate these pretty significant sleep debts. So that was one finding. The next finding that we found was that, maybe this is an aside, but that... that the, the time zones that these first-year students are living on is certainly not my time zone. They're actually going to bed about 2.30 uh, at night, waking up around uh, 2.30 in the morning, sorry, and then uh, waking up around you know 9 or so uh, in the morning. And so I found that to be kind of interesting in terms of thinking about, you know, how are these first-year students living while they're really you know, staying up until all hours. And by the way, that's during the week. Um, if you look at their weekend patterning, their average bedtime is around 3 a.m. So they push it about a half an hour later and sleep in a little bit longer. Wow. So that's the first piece. I think the second piece was that we found that the amount of total nightly sleep predicted their end of semester GPA really in a linear fashion, such that the more average nightly sleep these students were getting as measured by their Fitbits was predictive of higher GPA, uh, end of semester GPA. And the interesting thing was we saw that uh, across these institutions, we saw it in four out of the five data sets, the fifth data set we saw, it wasn't statistically significant, but sort of the, the pattern looked the same. So it was sort of generally true across these different institutions that we looked at and uh, a fairly robust effect. And what we did was we then said, well, do these effects, can we still see these total nightly sleep effects on end of semester GPA, even if we control for their previous semester GPA? So even mm. if we're sort of saying, hey, we're going to take your kind of existing academic performance and sort of look at this more prospectively. And yes, we see these effects persist. We then said, well, what if we control for their total academic load? Like maybe it's just, you know, students that are taking a heavier load or also uh, sleeping less. And when we controlled for that, we still see the effects. And then we said, well, what if we look at 
daytime sleep, right? Like some of these students are not sleeping much at night, but then they're doing a big nap bender, you know, in the afternoons. And so we aggregated up like what's the total daytime sleep outside of that nightly sleep window, right? Yeah. Yeah. David, it's interesting because one of the things that I was surprising to me from the study was that that piece that you just mentioned at the end, it's that daytime naps don't necessarily help. It's not the it's not the cumulative amount of sleep that I get during a day. It's the it's the amount I get in this nighttime setting that I have. Any thought on why that is part of this? Is there any hypothesis behind that? Or is that uh, TBD as you guys are, are looking at this in the future? Yeah, I mean, we don't have strong data to sort of unpack that. I think if I had to step back and look at this, you know, uh, if you look at the sleep medicine guidelines and the way people really are trying to support healthy sleep patterns. It's about really protecting and normalizing a nightly sleep window or, or at least a, a long sleep window for people every day. And because um, let's face it, some people are night workers and so they have to shift their sleep window. But right. to the degree right. you can really normalize that sleep window, sort of protect that time, that's going to be critical for outcomes. I, I think there's all sorts of interesting biology around if you start building in naps and how that's sort of using up some of the, you know, the sleep juice, so to speak, that people have for helping them fall asleep. And uh, I, I don't want to, for all the listeners here who are saying, hey, I'm a huge sleep sleep nap, I'm a nap person, you know, yeah. and, and I think there's certainly individual differences and some people do quite well with naps. So I don't want to take away the, uh, you know, the effectiveness of naps for some people. But, you know, if you look in aggregate at, at these first year college students, we're seeing this really small sleep window. Yeah. And I think there's an opportunity with this research to start to have a new conversation around what the best strategies are for people's academic success. And I think this long held idea, I'm going to stay up later and study longer um, because that's going to be the, the key for me, acing exams and so forth, is probably not the right strategy, at least according to this data. So the all-nighters that I did uh, at the Perkins <laughs> with the, the you know free coffee all night long were not the best strategy for, for long-term success on that, probably, right? Yeah, it's, you know, I... It depends on how many all-nighters you were pulling, you know. I, <laughs> okay. I think, Too many, I, think I will the, tell you yeah, that. Too many. Yeah. So, yeah. I think I think the big risk that I think people have is that as you start to chain together multiple nights where you're really impairing your total sleep duration, you know, you're getting into big trouble and you're building up this sleep debt in ways that's hard to recover from. And um, so, you know, I don't think this research is saying, hey, like, if you need to pull an all-nighter or something terrible happens and you need to be in the ER with a close friend, you know, yeah, these it's are gonna happen. These these things on balance, I think, are okay. But as you start to look at, you know, what are my sleep patterns, you know, and what am I protecting as a normal sort of nightly sleep window? I think that's where the conversation should really focus. And I think those are the places where you know, our data is really suggesting that first year students are missing the mark. And, you know, there's lots of reasons they could be not, they could be studying, they could be socializing, they could be playing video games and so on. And so, um, you know, there's probably a lot of reasons for that. Yeah. Tell us about the the last bucket of Here's um, the last findings. bucket. So we, we took this same nightly sleep duration data and we looked at it in a different way. We said, well, what if we bucket people, to use the bucket analogy, what if we bucket people into sleepers who are typically six hours a night or less, 
or six to seven hour sleepers or seven hour plus sleepers, right? So now we have these three groups. We can look at them and we can say, what happened from their previous semester GPA to their semester GPA where we were looking at in this study, right? And what we find is, and so it's sort of thinking about what's the GPA change that's happening for these three groups. And what we find is that the sleepers who are getting less than six hours a night, so our kind of poor, poor sleepers, we actually saw declines in their GPA from their previous term GPA to the kind of target wow. GPA we're interesting. Wow. If we look at the sort of six to seven hour a night sleepers, they actually have a slight improvement, close to zero, but a little little boost in terms of the their GPA change. And then if we look at the seven plus, these are the folks that are getting a, a much bigger boost in their GPA. And so this type of, uh, we call this like a, you know, a sensitivity analysis, a thresholded sensitivity analysis. But what they, what it gives us is this sort of interesting information to, to sort of say, we think that, that getting less than six hours of sleep may be a particularly kind of important threshold where sleep is going from helpful to harmful as you start to drop below that six hour mark, at least on an average basis. And so I think that's an important signal to, uh, you know, to the world that, you know, as you're starting to measure your, 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 your nightly sleep over the course of your weeks, if you're dipping below that six hour mark, uh, per night, you're, you're probably going to be in trouble. Yeah. So it, it just makes me think about, um, the generalizability of something like this, or, or maybe specifically the contribution to our larger sense of well-being. Um, have you, have you given those that kind of uh, lens, uh, any consideration? Yeah, I think think it's important to acknowledge that this was correlational work that we've been doing, uh, really looking at these associations over time in a a longitudinal study. And I think one of the, the big questions that I have is, you know, is there actually a causal relationship between total nightly sleep and end of semester GPA? And one of the best ways that we've been starting to think about doing this work is to really offer sleep interventions uh, early in academic terms to see if we can then actually increase people's uh, GPAs towards the end of the term. And that was the whole reason we set up this work. We're now starting to um, think about ways we can do those trials. If these findings are true, and you know, I think the, the trial work that we're going to do is going to help um, uh, establish or, or at least test those, those relationships, but if they're true, I do think that there's cascading benefits to these sleep duration, you know, getting your, your, getting your, your needed nightly sleep on people's, not only their academic success, but on their, their mental health and their capacity to build relationships and do some of the things that I think are so essential to being a, a first-year college student. You know, we've seen this in, in other studies where Nightly sleep duration seems to have some association with some of these variables. And we certainly know, at least on the neuroscience side, that there's nothing that should be surprising about the sort of nightly sleep duration academic success outcomes, because we know that sleep is such a critical period for learning and memory consolidation. And we've seen that in humans, we've seen that in in rodent models now, um, and, you know, people have continued to start to, uh, are, are continuing to really build out the sort of brain basis for these effects. Yeah. And, and again, obviously more research needs to be done on, on different cohorts and different things, but you can, you could 
really make a, a pretty easy jump to saying, all right, well, if it has that impact on GPA, if you're in a work situation, you know, long term work success and a variety of other factors that you can kind of probably at least say, hey, there's some there's some really good research that might in kind of indicate that that would be a, a piece and maybe we should do some research on that. I, I want to go back before we got on air, we started talking about actually how you develop the study. And that was an interesting way. It's kind of a unique way that is probably becoming more and more common, but hasn't necessarily been in the past. Can you tell us a little bit about the the process of how you guys develop the study? Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned before, this was a multi-university effort. And that really gave us or opened up some ways to really evaluate the reliability or reproducibility of this work. And so, you know, we had five trial data sets where we had students wearing Fitbits over an academic term or academic terms. And so what we did was we took one of the data sets and we called it our discovery data set. And we really started to look at all of the different types of sleep features. So you can imagine not just total nightly sleep duration being a feature that would be of interest, but we could say, what's the average bedtime, right? Yeah. And uh, right. you could, you right. could make interesting predictions like students whose bedtimes are all over the place right? You know, one night I'm going to bed at midnight, the next night I'm going to bed at 5am. And you can imagine that type of kind of variability would be pretty disruptive for people's uh, sleep patterns and their academic success, their average wake time, for example. Yeah. And uh, we looked at, at sleep in a number of ways in this discovery data set. And we really found that some of the most robust effects were in this total nightly sleep duration feature. And so we pushed that and a couple of other sleep features forward into um, now testing these associations in our confirmatory data sets. So we pre-registered our predictions after we did that discovery work. We talked about the discovery work in our pre-registration, and we said, hey, we think total nightly sleep duration is a really important uh, factor for people's academic success, and we're now going to test it in these data sets that we haven't yet looked at. And, you know, as I said, we, we saw these pretty robust and significant associations in four out of the five data sets. And so you know, we think this may be a robust effect. We want more people to be looking at this. And I think we've sort of set up a method for doing this discovery and then confirmatory work across multiple data sets. David, can you talk for those listeners who may not be in an academic or research setting as to why this is different than than how a traditional, what, what makes this discovery component and then going back and looking at from that discovery work into then the, the next part of research? Why is that different or important for people to to be to understand yeah i mean i think there's been a an issue across the social and behavior and biological sciences around sort of snooping in your data and then sort of <laughs> writing a paper that says hey we kind of thought this was going to be the case and you know this can can produce what we would call false positives where yeah. you know it was really sort of by luck that you kind of fell upon these findings and it wasn't robust uh, over time. But, you know, with, with this work that we do in terms of a two-stage discovery confirmatory work, we're saying, listen, we're doing this discovery work. We, we looked at all this data, but now we're holding up what we think to be some evidence-based predictions and really testing them in new data sets in these confirmatory data sets. And so uh, it, I think, raises the bar on um, this sort of issue around, hey, we need to do discovery work. We need to sort of 
kind of mine the data and look for what what are the best sleep features in our case, mm-hmm. but then hold those up to uh, independent uh, validation. And I think what it does for science is it allows us to both acknowledge the importance of the discovery work, but also acknowledge the importance of reproducibility and that we could report how reproducible these findings were. And that really moves science forward because we don't want to be publishing a lot of false positives that sort of lead people down certain directions that just aren't going to hold up over time. Why is reproducibility an issue? Why why is it important? Well, we hold science and our scientific findings to be telling us something true about humans. And if we're just publishing flashy findings that aren't going to reproduce in, in other settings, it is going to lose the audience that we have and the trust in, in scientists in terms of reporting something that's going to be uh, a reliable effect. And so, you know, in the last 10 years, there's been just a really huge transformation, particularly in psychology and to some degree in the social sciences. We're, we're kind of pushing the biological sciences to catch up in some cases, because I think these these issues around reproducibility are true no matter what scientific, scientific discipline we're, we're, we're coming from. But I, I think we're really seeing a major phase shift towards these type of reports that focus on how reproducible is this finding, as opposed to how flashy or exciting would this finding be. And uh, so we're doing a lot more uh, around open science and pre-registration. So pre-registration is this approach that we take where we basically say, here's what we're going to do and here's what we're predicting. And I'm going to put that in a public place so everybody knows it. I haven't collected the data what? yet or I haven't analyzed the data. <laughs> and no matter how it comes out, I'm going to have some report around what I actually found. I think this is an important advance for how we do our science. It's scary for many scientists. You've had some researcher degrees of freedom around how they want to think about the work that they're doing and, um, and, and how they want to present it, how too. they want to present it. <laughs> and also is scary for a scientist to go out on a limb and, um, you know, make a counterintuitive or flashy prediction. But that's why I think we are, we're trying to do this discovery work too. So sort of say, Hey, we've done some initial work you know, or we've done some pilot work, for example, and we think these things are going to come out. And I think that's good for science. Yeah. So, David, where else is this relevant? What, what, where else is this being studied? Yeah, there's this amazing research in, in neuroscience where they're looking at, at rodents. So these are mice or rats in studies and really looking at sleep effects in really interesting ways. So a typical parent, and by the way, this is work that's been going on for three decades. So, wow. you know, it's an established literature. And what they do is they they take these rodents, they basically put them into a new maze. They then give them an opportunity to sleep. Sometimes those are naps. And so sometimes those are their, you know, these are, are nocturnal animals. So they're, you know, they're sleeping during the day. They give them a, you know, a period of, to sleep. And they basically you know, put these wires into their brains to really look at electrical activity in specific areas of the brain during the, um, both the running period where they're running these mazes during the sleep period. And then again, when they put them back in that maze to see quickly or how quickly they've sort of learned, right? Um, do they know how to run that maze and sort of find, find the, the food stations uh, in it? They find that these sleep periods are a really critical time where you're sort of replaying in this case, that maze running experience. And so the some of the, the terms for this literature are sleep replay uh, in this literature. They find in really interesting ways that 
you're sort of replaying those in a forward or backward sequence in terms of the, the, the replay experience during sleep. And there's some suggestion that these replay events during sleep are sort of occurring at a five-fold faster rate than what they were in real time. The, the hippocampus uh, plays a critical role in this type of uh, sleep replay effect. And it's also communicating with the prefrontal cortex uh, in ways that we think may be really sort of replaying these events and sort of baking them into, um, in this case, these rodents' long-term memories in ways that when they then um, come and run the, the maze on the next day or after that nap, uh, they're able to run it more effectively, efficiently, and faster. If you set up lesions to sort of disrupt this replay, you can wipe out these learning effects. So what I love about this animal literature, and this has been predominantly animals, a little bit in humans, is that it's really already, I think, been highlighting now for decades the importance of these sleep periods for learning and memory consolidation. And for those of us sort of, uh, those, those of us humans that are going to college, you know, we don't typically think about sleep as being an active period of learning. We think about it as a time to sort of maybe reset our metabolic systems and kind of, you know, rest and relax. But we don't think about it as an active period. But in our brains, particularly during periods of our sleep, particularly slow wave sleep, there is a very active learning process that's going on that is so critical for helping us on the next day to be able to bring back those, those memories and that learning from the previous day. And I just think that work is so interesting and really starts to speak to what could potentially be some of the interesting neurobiological mechanisms for why total sleep duration may matter for uh, driving forward these, these uh, GPA benefits over the course of a semester. If only I would have known about this research when I was 18 <laughs> and, you know, going, ah, the, you know, the less sleep I get, who, I, I can I can spend that extra couple hours studying and learning. And then, you know, who cares? I, I can sleep when I'm dead. That was a, a quote that I used to always use. And I, I, I regret that now. But, hey, that's how, you know, live and learn, as we say. So, David, do you listen to music when you when you fall are falling off to sleep? I do not. I. uh I try to keep a device away from me. <laughs> okay. You know, a okay. lot of the a lot of the challenges with with sleep have come with the advent of uh, and the ubiquity of these data enabled smartphones that we carry around. And you know, we started to look at this data in our samples and finding that the number of notifications and phone light ups per hour is you know on average, I think it was something like sixty to eighty light ups an hour. What? It was. It was it was, it's really, really high. And so you can imagine as a college student trying to fall asleep, but having this amazing little device next to you that's lighting up and pulling your attention. And so, you know, a lot of the sort of sleep hygiene guidelines these days are really about putting phones out of arm's reach or ideally in the other room so that you can really protect winding down and falling asleep. And so I, I think there's some real value in sort of thinking about those things. You're probably going to ask me a different question. I hear I went on some tirade, but. No, no, that was, that was fantastic. I, I'm curious about what's on your playlist though. What, 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 when you do listen to music, what, what do you like to listen to? Yeah. Well, um, my six-year-old loves Taylor Swift. So in car rides, I listen to a lot of Taylor Swift. <laughs> um, so that's happening. But um, for me, I, uh, <laughs> 
I have a couple of Pandora stations that I like to cycle through. And uh, most recently, it's been my Hawaiian radio station. <laughs> and oh. uh, I could tell you about my love for Hawaii uh, at some point. But let, let, Well, let's just start with what kind of Hawaiian music. There's a lot of, there's a wide variety. Are you, are you like, f- like, I love the whole folk range music, of it. like, yeah, I love slack the key guitar. Love it. And yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and some of the kind of fun, even poppy Hawaiian music, if you call yep. it poppy. Don Ho and, yeah, and all that it. kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, okay. And then, um, right. I, I've been, I, I, I'm a big classic rock guy, so I've been going back to my, my Beatles white album, um, uh, Pandora station and kind of hitting some of the, the great stuff from that period. I think those are two pretty great selections yeah. actually. Well, David, I have to tell you, uh, as with a 13 year old at home, the Taylor Swift uh, is still prevalent. So you might be listening to Taylor <laughs> for a long time in your car rides. Just to, just to let you know. Um, I'm, I'm bracing myself, you know, it could be worse. It could be worse. I will agree with you. There's some goodness right. there. So they're saying yeah, she's one of right. the best lyricists of our generation. So that yeah. is true. That Super is, clever. That is very true. So yeah. Yeah. David Cresswell, thanks so much for being a guest on Behavior Grooves, and we hope you'll come back to continue our conversation. Yeah, that's great. And um, for folks who are interested in this work, please, you know, check out our website. And um, I'll look forward to next time we're going to, I think, talk about mindfulness training and we're, we're building some new mindfulness trainers. I'd love to, to tell folks about to, to test them out. Fantastic. And we'll put all of those links in the show notes. So people, you can just check that out. And, uh, and David, thank you. Hey, thanks a lot. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with David, have a free flowing conversation and groove on whatever else comes into our very tired brains. Oh, you are tired this morning, aren't you? I got so we're talking about sleep, right? And we're doing this and I literally got three hours of sleep last night. I have a sore throat and I just, it was, uh, it just kept me up all night. It was really, really bad. So yeah. Sleep, this is, and we're going to talk about this more, but just to make sure that listeners know you have um, perpetual sleep troubles. Yeah. I, I I can uh, attest to the fact that my sleep is not like yours. You, you sleep like all through the night and perfectly like, and I, I am not that person. So yeah. I've gotten better. I have gotten a lot better at sleep over the years. I used to be really have insomnia and be up in the middle of the night, multiple hours and do different things. And it's gotten much better over the years, yeah. but still have some sleep issues. Yes. Well, let's talk about key insights from uh, David Cresswell's article. How about that? Um, okay. This is so cool that they, um, that he and, and his colleagues really focused on how are we going to look at the interplay between sleep and learning and and to see and to really zero in on this idea that that you get right down to this difference between six and a half or six and six and a half hours and seven hours are meaningfully different measures that that 30 minutes those 30 minute increments are important 
Yeah, and and not just that. I love that the study looked at long-term performance in a real-world situation. Grade point averages, right? Yeah, this is right. this is not a lab study where they then do uh, how your cognitive pieces after waking up and right. different things. This is sleeping in a natural setting. Um, it's wearing a Fitbit, so they're tracking that, mm -hmm. and it is showing the impact that sleep at the beginning of the quarter has on their long term, which is really fascinating when you think about it. Because you go, all right, I get this idea that sleep can have an immediate impact on that day or different pieces, but to kind of have that cascade down river, yeah. so to say, into your grade point average that is uh, longer term, that's really, really kind of important. Yeah, let, let me just, I just want to take exactly what you said and just think about it this way, that a bad night's sleep doesn't just impact the next day, it impacts maybe your whole life or for, at least for at least for weeks wow. weeks and months to come <laughs> are you talking chaos theory here one bad night i i then miss the the sliding glass doors and all of a sudden could my be. life is totally changed it could be a sliding doors thing it yeah. could be yeah absolutely oh so um, so I, I think this is really interesting and i and, and we talked a lot about the actual uh study in in the interview but and I know we shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. But I, what I find really fascinating about this is this idea that while they studied freshmen in college and that impact on grade point average, the implications for this, I think, can be generalized. And I know we're not supposed to generalize these kind of studies out there, but I think that this is one that is probably okay to at least think about it in in that perspective to say, hey, sleep not only matters for freshmen in grade point averages, but probably for new hires in their job, in their first few months of the job, for middle managers who are trying to lead yep. you know, organizations, for parents who have kids and are trying to you know, make sure that they do everything positive. I think it could be maybe expanded to a larger group. How about if you're a CEO making decisions about the strategic direction of the company? You know, maybe there could be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people impacted by how well you're sleeping and and how fresh and sharp your your brain is when it comes to processing these things. And again, it is the little bits that kind of add up, right? It is that difference between six and a half and seven. It is the uh, ability for our brains to learn, right? That sleep replay, that that hippocampus coming in, yeah. that active period of learning. It is the uh, other components of taking the toxins out of our brain at night. It is all of those facets that play into the long-term productivity and uh, output that we are able to produce. And so, yes, I, I think CEOs in particular, and there's a couple that are prominent that I know don't get a lot of sleep just from what they say on on their platforms and other things. And you kind of go, maybe you ought to begin some more sleep, dude. You know, we talked to Rushir Sarah, who was uh, the developer. He's a uh, my my recollection is that he is a psychologist and um, entrepreneur and he created the Resonia app yeah. uh, for, you know, to help people. That was back in episode 26 26 man we were just pups we were young i had hair you know all that kind of stuff yeah, it was go. even before you had kids i mean yeah. it's like you know, <laughs> no no it wasn't okay uh, but 
but clearly this, uh, and, and I want to come back to uh, something that you said, that sleep as is an active period of learning is something that keeps coming up. It just makes me want to uh, find a guest who we could talk to about maybe the neuroscience of sleep. Oh, you know, I think really, that would be awesome. Really we need to of, get that. We need to get, if anybody knows of them, let us know, send us an email or tweet us or do whatever it is that you need to do. Yeah. All right, absolutely. Mr. Mr. Houlihan, let's give our listeners, let's give those groovers out there some tips. Now, most of our groovers are smart. They probably have heard all of these sleep tips already because a lot of them are there. But let's let's give them because sometimes even though we know, right, it's good we to don't be reminded. necessarily do them. All Agreed. Right. Yeah. All right. And and by the way, we source this from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, this is a reputable organization that has, has done good stuff. And um, newsflash, the idea of uh, turning off your electronic devices 30 minutes before bedtime is not a newsflash. <laughs> <laughs> but no. but it, it's good to be reminded. Okay, what? Uh, where would you want to start in this, Kurt? So, so one thing that I... So I've started to do as much as I can, and I, I'm not uh, really good at this, but it, it has helped is keeping a consistent sleep schedule. Uh, so this idea of trying to get to sleep within a certain uh, time frame for me, it's a little bit after 11 and then getting up every day at about the same time for me, it's about 630, 645. So mm -hmm. that is an idea that, hey, it it helps set your your body's circadian rhythm and mm -hmm. by doing that your body is expecting to go to sleep and is prepared to go to sleep at that time right. and it is getting up at that same time so it's a it's a piece and i i think that it's really important and again there's lots of research on larks versus owls and various different things so you know set that sleep pattern that's good for you can you explain larks versus owls not uh, all of our listeners might know the difference thank you thank you so so we all have a circadian rhythm this idea that uh, out of 24 hours there's certain periods where our body is more active and engaged and other periods where our body is more um uh, relaxed and tired. And we tend to have sleep patterns. And some uh, are early risers. Those are the larks. Those are the people who get up early and feel like refreshed in the morning and can just go at it. And then there are the owls. Uh, and the owls are, the, as you can kind of guess from the the reference there nighttime they stay up late and they don't operate as well in the morning and most of us fit somewhere in between right and so but uh we all have our own kind of optimal circadian rhythm now you can change that from my understanding and i know i was working with a sleep uh doctor for a while and they said i was a uh, owl and um i'm going but i can't be because i can't sleep in in the morning because I have client meetings and other things. So, yeah. um, and they talked about, well, then you have to wean yourself off of that. So one other uh, thing to add to that is that a circadian rhythm has to do with how we perform over our 24 hour period, that yeah. that is our, our start to stop day, basically, including sleep and daytime activities. Yeah. Uh, so just, just for those, uh, those folks who are not familiar with that term, um, I, I like to have a, a relaxing bedtime r routine as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, uh, as you mentioned, I do kind of sleep like a baby. I sleep really well. I'm really grateful for that. So what's and, your routine? Well, you know, my routine is is the the, the get ready for bed routine is the, it's kind of the same stuff. It's the, you know, 
floss and brush and and you know uh, that that kind of stuff. And uh, and my preference is to read something kind of calming and quieting. Um, oh, you know, for just just a few minutes, just even just four or five minutes, just to take my mind off of whatever was going. And um, I, I re- rely on a great gift that I that I got from you, Kurt, and that is the uh, meditations of Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> I do because <laughs> it's, it's so boring. There you well, go. No, yeah. it's just it's just really peaceful. It's just yeah. it, uh, you know, and it's it's oriented in, in such a way that you can you can read three or four meditations. That's in, true. In just a, a couple of minutes, and it's just uh, it's a nice way for me to to kind of to get into sleep. And yeah. and sometimes Katie and I will have sort of a, a end of the day chat um, uh, at, at that time as well. But it's yeah. it's it's calm and, and revisiting, and not we're not trying to solve world problems <laughs> at that time. Well, I do similar, you know, brush and floss and take my medication and do all of that. And I mark that off on my calendar. I check it off. And so I have not missed uh, brushing and flossing in like three years, not even a day. So it's been pretty consistent on that. And then I, I typically go and I do some journaling. And so I sit in a, in a chair that's a comfortable chair uh, in another room that's kind of a, a adjacent to our bedroom. And I write down some thoughts. Sometimes it's as simple as it was a good day or it was a, a hectic day and that's it. And other times it's a couple paragraphs talking, kind of letting those things in my brain kind of get out onto that paper and that helps. So that's, yeah. that's what I do. And then I head off to bed and yeah. That, that seems pretty reasonable. I also was, I go back to a, a comment that a physician made to me many years ago that said, uh, he said, a good night's sleep happens after you've had a good day. Yeah. And so that supports the um, the recommendation uh, here from the uh, um, American Academy of Sleep Medicine that regular exercise and a healthy diet really contribute to a good day. Yeah. They, they contribute to sort of getting you actually in the position of having a good night's sleep. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting because my sleep problems have never usually been about falling asleep initially. Mm -hmm. They've usually been waking up. And so it's the waking up and then not falling back asleep. And for me, mostly it's stress related. It it is ruminating over what's going on. I got all these things to do, all these various different aspects. And so um, I have found uh, the, the, you know, the Academy of, uh, of Sleep Medicine, American Academy of Sleep Medicine, recommends that you get out of bed and you go quietly do an activity without lots of light exposure for 20 minutes or so and then get back into bed. I, I don't. What I end up doing and what's worked for me is I have sleep phones, which you've seen, mm-hmm. which is basically a headband that has speakers in them so I can lay on my side of my head and they're not like eating into my my skull. And I have a sleep um, playlist where all the songs are ones that I know. It's a pretty, I, I know the order that they're coming in. And what that does, and, and it's interesting because my daughter goes, this is your sleep music. And because it's kind of, some of the music's not like all relaxing and calm. Right. It's actually some, you know, thumping music and different things. But for me, what it does is it allows me to, um, my brain starts going to the lyrics and it starts instead of ruminating over all of the work I have to do or the things that I haven't done and all that, I, my brain starts thinking, oh, what are these lyrics? And then that slowly gets me back into sleep and it works really well for me for the most so part. So 
Yeah, there's a lot of environmental stuff in this. Uh, and we know that behavioral science, if nothing, reminds us that context matters. Yeah. Right? That environment and the situation in which things happen is huge impacts, right? I found even just putting the headband on and having that headband pressure, um, even if they don't have the music on with it, helps. It, 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 it just kind of, it's like my, I've been reinforced into this idea, oh, headbands on must be sleeping, you know? That's so. good. I'm glad you're not thinking, now I look like Richard Simmons because <laughs> <laughs> that, that's... <laughs> Everybody up oh, and jazzercise. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, and, and so, you know, and, and again, the, there's all of the different pieces. Andrew Huberman uh, talks a lot. They, uh, they, the Academy talks about limiting uh, exposure to bright light in the evenings. Mm -hmm. Andrew Huberman also talks about getting bright light in the morning early. Again, yeah. that helps reset your circadian rhythm. Uh, obviously, avoid caffeine, um, drinking alcohol before bedtime, reduce fluid intake if you're like me and get up in the middle of the night because um, you have to go pee and then then you're up. Um, then you start brain operating. So limit all that. So it, my brain never operates. Things. So, you know, getting up in the middle of the night to pee isn't shaking anything up because it's just it's like zzz, radio silence there anyway. So, not, oh, well, I think that's probably enough to wrap up this episode of Behavioral Grooves. If we go on longer, I'm pretty sure listeners will start nodding off. <laughs> well, maybe that's a good thing. Well, hopefully our <laughs> listeners haven't fallen asleep from being too bored during this episode. Well, what if what if it wasn't being bored? What if they fell asleep for, because of the, the somnolescence of our voices? How about that? <laughs> now, there's a word I haven't ever used. Somnolescence. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, um, for me, this is exciting and informative, you know, uh, and uh, for, you know, Kurt and I really love to talk about this, this content because it's, it's meaningful to, to lots of people. And by the way, if, if you Groovers, if you think that we would love for you to follow us or subscribe to the podcast or maybe even just, you know, just your favorite pod episode, any, any behavioral groove stuff that you like, love it, favorite it, support it, all those kinds of things. Apple, Spotify, whatever pod service that you choose to listen to, um, just give us a follow or a subscribe click and we would just really appreciate it. And, and please forward the episode on to a friend or colleague or post about it in social media. All those things um, are greatly, greatly appreciated. And with that, we hope you've learned something from this episode too. And, and that this week, you get some good sleep that helps you go out and find your groove. 